Hello and welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Uh, this is a podcast brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to get your work out there. Maybe some best practices. Maybe you've been wondering for a while how to pitch, how to submit, uh, maybe what kind of editing you need. But before that, let's meet our panel. I'm Andrew Robertson, fanboy and aspiring writer. I'm Sephra Jerome. I'm the Ontario chapter head of the Horror Writers Association and horror novelist. I'm Monica S. Kubler, managing editor of Rumorg Magazine and author of the online young adult serial, The Blood Magic Saga. I'm Suzanne Church, and I'm the author of Soul Larcenist, uh, book four in the Helmoth series from the Ed Greenwood Group. And I'm Bill Snyder, horror poet, horror poet, uh, and host of the radio show After Rock and eater of many cookies. So for this episode, what we're thinking is a bit of a how-to guide for the amateur. There's a lot of people out there that are wondering how to get their work published, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. And for someone like myself who's published in other genres, but not published in this genre, I think it's it's very specific and it's very interesting. And we've got a table of experts here. So we're going to put the questions to them. And the first question that I've got for everyone is... What's one of the biggest misconceptions or mistakes that a young horror writer can make when trying to get their work out there? Bringing their manuscript to a convention and giving it to an editor. <laughs> no, that seriously is bad. Do not do that, ever, ever. That, that, and I know you're asking about nuts and bolts of how to write, but seriously, as an etiquette and protocol thing, uh, they will not remember you kindly if you make them carry your 400 page manuscript around and luckily you know nowadays we have flash drives but the biggest challenge I guess is people trying to send their work out too soon before it's ready um, especially now we live in an instant gratification society and people think they can just write stuff out send it out and if they don't hear within four hours whether it's been accepted or rejected they have temper tantrums and you have to remember that it takes years to hone your craft years and many many drafts to write a story and often unless you've been doing this a hell of a long time you need other people to look at your work uh to let you know it, you know what's working and what isn't before you even think about sending it out so let's talk about that a little because you you mentioned uh pitch competitions which i think is quite advanced for some of the younger writers but let's talk about someone who's finished a manuscript and is considering either self-publishing or traditional publishing and what should be the next step? Suzanne, I think you have something to say on this. Yeah, uh, two things. First of all, nine times out of ten, if you think a manuscript is done, it probably needs to sit a while. <laughs> and that means put it in a drawer, don't look at it because you, you need a chance for your brain to think about something else so that when you come back to the manuscript, you can look at it with fresh eyes. And I think Seth had a very good point. We're in an instant gratification society. The trick is to not be tempted to say, oh, I just typed the end. Maybe I should now put it on Amazon because people will want to buy this book right away. No, no, no. Do not, do not, do not, do not. I can't say it enough times. Do not put it on Amazon right away. Let the manuscript sit for a while. Have other people look at it, be they uh, your critique group, a professional editor, 
even a couple of other writers that you interact with or plot noodle with to make sure that what was in your head actually made it onto the page. So, Suzanne, when someone thinks that their manuscript is done, actually, Suzanne and everyone at the table, what should you be looking for in an editor? Because I understand that there's several different layers of editing that can happen between copy, content development, and then a final look at, at... where every period and comment spaces. Um, well, first of all, the most important edit pass, in my opinion, is the first one, the high-level edit, where you just have someone look through it and say, you know what, your conclusion went too quickly, or in the middle it lagged, or this protagonist or this secondary character needs a little more of an arc. Because those changes, you want to make them first. There's no point in looking f- whether or not you used all your commas correctly if you're going to delete half the book in the middle because that section didn't work. You might as well do the big arc edits first, get them over with before you start smoothing something as, as detailed as you know, commas and the occasional double use of the word and. Uh, Sephra, I know that you work as a content development editor, but you also do different forms of editing for clients. So mm-hmm. what how, what are your first steps when someone brings a manuscript to you that they're certain is finished? Well, I, I ask them, what, first of all, what they're expecting from their editing experience because, as we all know, the word editing can mean anything. Uh, so, But what I, my specialty is and what I love doing the best is what Suzanne has described, uh, which I call developmental editing. And um, it, that's the big picture kind of thing. And... Because if your story isn't working, like Suzanne said, there's no point in paying someone to you know put all the commas in the right place and all that if the actual story doesn't make sense. It's most important for your story to make sense that um, you know your character doesn't change who you know from a man to a woman halfway through or whatever you know, <laughs> um, or a fish to an ape or you know what I mean. Like it, it, it's about continuity, making sense. Does your character learn anything? Does it grow? What's the point of the story? Um, the thing I find amusing to me over the years as an editor is if I'll flag something and then I get like this big long you know rant back. It's only it's only happened to me a couple times, and it's usually when I'm working for a service and then someone else like forwards me this rant, um, where they you'll know, say, okay, this doesn't make sense or whatever, and then. Uh, the the author will spend like five pages explaining to me why it does make sense, and I just laugh because it's like if you have to spend five pages telling me what made sense, like you didn't do your job, and and it's as it, it's as simple as that. If you have to explain to me why this makes sense, it's not on the page. So what are you going to do? Follow around every reader and, and explain to them how this didn't, you know? So your editor is your friend. It doesn't matter if it's a freelance editor like I am or if it's like Don Doria at wherever he's gone now or whoever, Ellen Datlow, all these people. We love our work. We love writers. We want our writers to shine. And so if we're, it seems like we're picking on you and you get your thing back with 2,000 whatever's marks on it, it's because we're trying to make you shine and you're paying us to make you shine unless, you know, Maybe you're not paying us, but if you're going through the process with a traditionally traditional publisher house, you know you're you're getting paid for this, and other people are making you shine. So don't be fighting with your editors; they want to help you. They're your friends. Now that's actually interesting because there's there's a certain sense in the writing community that certain writers don't want a word touched. Yep. But the <laughs> fact of the matter is, 
you need a really thick skin. I mean, there's rumors abound that Anne Rice will not let any editor change even one word of one of her manuscripts. Mm -hmm. But the culture has changed so much. And I want Monica to speak to this because Monica has a very specific experience in publishing on Wattpad and in a very public forum where there's a lot of dialogue with the readers, with the fans, and in terms of uh, the fans looking at content development or suggesting changes to the novel, um, I saw you speak once, Monica, and you you spoke about how the fan response compelled you to change certain elements of the story. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Well, it was sort of a different thing. Um, I was working with an editor at the time. Um, but because I'm a long way from being a teenager and I write for teens, I wanted to put some work out there to see how today's teenagers would respond to it. And along the way, I learned some really interesting things that have changed from my generation to theirs. The big one is that today's young readers don't have the same level of patience that our generation did for a story to get moving. <laughs> they really sure. want the bang to be right there in the first chapter. So for me, I had readers go, yeah, I, find this, uh, I love the book, but I found the intro a little bit slow. So I, I spent a lot of time finessing that first, the first three chapters of the book over and over again, trying to find that perfect balance because the nature of my book was we needed the intro to be a bit slow because we needed to see the main character out in the nor her or normal everyday world so that we could truly appreciate the character growth and development by the time you see where she's at in the final chapter. So understanding the trajectory of the book, I could say to the readers, well, I can't cut it out entirely because then you're not going to see the character's journey, which will then diminish this coming-of-age tale. But I can understand that you don't want to spend so much time there, so I'm going to compress some of that journey to get you to the monsters faster. Now, Monica, can you talk a little bit about how you presented your work publicly leading up to the launch of your upcoming novel? Since because I think it was, it was a very interactive process for you in many ways that I think that maybe some of the listeners would be interested in. Well, I started uh, serializing the series back in January of 2012, and I posted a chapter a week. I did have editorial support before any of those chapters went up, but, you know, Wattpad is very much a community forum. You post a chapter, it has a whole comment section where people can leave comments, good or bad, and like I said, in some ways it helped, it helped shape the book. It also told me, in the end, whether it was a series I should pursue for publication. And the whole reason that I ended up pursuing it for publication was because I had a number of readers come out and email me and say, I really want a print edition. So I think, you know, there are different technologies nowadays where if you have an idea and you're not, and you're maybe, you know, not necessarily married to going the traditional publisher route because some traditional publishers will close their door to you if you've put it online first. But if you're maybe a little insecure about an idea, insecure about your writing, insecure about your target audience, you know, the great thing about the internet now is that there's ways to test your work. Places like Wattpad and other serial fiction 
sharing websites that can, you know, let you know if you've got a book that people are going to glom onto, or maybe if it's, you know, maybe it's a story that's just not quite there yet, or, you know, maybe it's not a story that talks to today's readers, and you should, you know, invest your time in a different narrative or whatever. That's interesting because a lot of people want to know how to get a publisher's attention, and with the rise of platforms like Wattpad, we see Wattpad authors and self-published authors across platforms that have experienced such a, a rise in a fan base that they've received print deals solely from self-publishing online. So for the listeners out there, what's the best way to get a publisher's attention? Is it going through sort of a... a a crowdsourced platform like Wattpad or something similar to that where you gain fans that eventually want to see a published work or are there other more traditional means that are still working that can get your work out there? I think it depends on what your end game is mm -hmm. because like I said if you want to go to the big one of the big five putting it online first might not be the best idea because suddenly you you're, you've given away your first your first print rights because it's already been out there once so um, you know, if you if you really got your heart set on going big five, although big five author or big five publishers have bought things from Wattpad, yes, they have. Um, yeah, it's true. You know, you might want to build up a following, say, writing short stories, getting them in magazines, anthologies. If traditional publishing is the way you want to go, you should probably continue on some sort of traditional trajectory towards that. Um, however, at the same time, a lot of publishers these days want to know what your fan base is. So if you have a fan base on a platform like Wattpad or, you know, on Facebook or Twitter, you know, you can show those numbers. You can show, you know, hey, I've put a couple books on Wattpad. They have 500,000 reads or whatever. I have this many people who follow me. I have this many people when I post a chapter who click that chapter within the first 24, 48 hours of posting. I mean, online sites like that can give you some really good stats that you can someday, you know, take and use to say, yeah, I have a fan base. I, I am a brand. You know, I can handle my own promotion. I'm not going to rely on your marketing department because let's face it, unless you're Stephen King or another huge name author, there probably isn't very much of a marketing budget for you in today's, you know, world of publishing and how much it's kind of compressed with the recession and just the changes, you know, from print to digital and publishing, publishing not really knowing where it's heading. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. It actually leads us to how an author promotes themselves, which um, I've actually seen Bill and Suzanne both talk about. Uh, Bill, who has a podcast that supports his work and his interests, and Suzanne, who I've seen talk at length about engaging with your audience on social media. So if the two of you could talk about how those two forums actually help you engage with your readers, that would be awesome. Well, I find that uh, I try to be on Twitter and Facebook as often as possible, probably more Twitter than Facebook. And I think rule number one, if you're going to be an author and you're going to be trying to build followers, rule number one is do not talk about your book all the time. No one wants to hear you say, oh, and by the way, I have a book out right now. Oh, and by the way, you should buy my book right now. They want to know about you. They want to know about what you're doing, about the cool things that are happening in your life. They want to know what makes an author tick. So I tend to tweet about hockey because I love hockey. I tend to tweet about my kids because we're all a little bit nuts and we do some silly, funny stuff that we want to share. 
and I, I tweet about things that I'm passionate about. And to me, those are more important than just slogging the book. And I do occasionally mention my book, particularly if something's exciting, exciting is happening, like it's just going to be released next week, or I've just done a podcast, maybe you should have a listen. But for the most part, what I do on Twitter is just stuff about that bunny I saw in my yard this morning, or the fact that, you know, my kid wore something cool to school. Those are just as interesting, I think, to fans. Absolutely. And the whole the whole concept of selling, period, is about engaging the consumer, the customer, the person you're trying to sell the product to. Is if you don't bring them into a relationship of one sort or another, they don't care. They might love the story, but they actually love more the person who's dealing with it. That's why you find people who are always excited to see a new interview by somebody that they are famous of, Stephen King or whomever else, and they'll listen to it, and they'll listen to it, and they'll love it. The whole idea is to be engaging. Uh, the other thing I also say is it's also good to give something. So that's what I like doing with the uh, radio show. It's like I like to enjoy just talking about whatever. So that gives people something to enjoy coming from me, as well as on Facebook and on Twitter, sharing little snips, little stories, little other things, just creating something and just releasing it and letting it go, not worrying about whether or not it has a return, whether it cares about a number of people who are sharing it, copying it, doing whatever. It's just putting something out there. Some people will enjoy it. Some people won't. All that matters is that you get it going. One thing that I really like to do um, on the Facebook group for my book series is instead of constantly talking about the book series, I'll ask the readers what they're working on, what they've read recently that has excited them. You know, I'll inc- you know there'll be a day in the week where I'll encourage them to pimp their own stuff. It's, you know, instead of it's just me talking at them and them relating to me on the basis of their life, I kind of ask for them to, you know, give me some content, tell me what I should read, like bring, you know, ask them to come even further into the conversation than, you know, me just saying, hey, this is what's going on in my world right now. I think that's the advantage that we all have with social media and something that is changing so many industries when we're dealing with disruptive technologies that can take your art and distribute it to people basically for free. Anyone can take it. Um, But if you're engaging with your fans, I think there's less of a chance that you're going to experience a glut of downloads of your ebook or your music or your film because you're offering something more to those fans. You're offering them something for free under the understanding that when you release something, that's something that they're actually going to pick up and cherish. And I think that's why uh, artists like Monica... Uh, have fans coming to them that want a print version of the book because it it has become something so important and special to them. But a big part of that, I think, is actually your engagement with them. Um, So that was actually something that I wanted to ask you, Sephra, because I know that this year, every month, you're releasing a book. And it and everyone's laughing around the table because that's like <laughs> an insane undertaking. Yeah, we'll see how how. Well, but you know, how I make it. <laughs> witches and bitches, and she's been doing her stuff. <laughs> so it that every <laughs> every month you're releasing a book. Yes. But to promote that, you're engaging with fans every day, and you're giving away free readings. Yeah, horoscopes. I um. It's something I've been playing with for years. I've been doing tarot. I've been a tarot reader for many years, and then a couple of years ago, I started with the idea of, oh, maybe I'd do some horoscopes on YouTube, and I and I do the odd one, and I do the odd Instagram uh, for Aquarius because I'm an Aquarius, and I knew a lot of Aquarius people, 
And so I do like a daily Aquarius thing on Instagram for a year. But yeah, so now um, I'm doing this monthly and it's astrology erotic horror series <laughs> and we, about a coven of witches who are <laughs> looking to get laid. It's everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of it. It's my it's my American horror story kitchen sink thing. <laughs> okay. You know I heard that's the new season. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It is. So yeah, so right now I'm doing weekly tarot scopes on romancebeat.com and they're also available on my YouTube channel all free and so this is my way of cross promoting that people will um, want to hear and these are videos really short like one minute if that and uh, just hey you know what's Taurus going to do this week or what's Pisces going to do this week and all this and I figure people will um, you know like to look at that and maybe they'll click on the link and maybe they'll buy a book or something but I don't ask them to buy a book or I don't even talk about my books but it's one way I just figured it's one more way for me to get my face or name because I have a crazy name out there um so that you know when I do do something like release a book maybe people oh I know that name or that's familiar or whatever and maybe maybe it'll help maybe it doesn't I have no idea it's a wild west out there with this self-promotion stuff it, it's true. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to engage with your fans, with your readers, and I think that we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg. This is definitely a topic that we're going to revisit in future episodes, but we have an interview segment coming up, and I believe that Monica's got a little bit more information on that for our listeners. Yes, coming up next, Bill Snyder will be talking to Monica J. O'Rourke, author of Suffer the Flesh, about her career writing Extreme Horror. Buckle in, guys. It's going to get wild. Hey, how's it going, people in the world out there? This is Bill Snyder of the Great Lakes Horror Company coming to you with a wonderful interview with Monica O'Rourke. How's it going, Monica? Hi, going terrifically well (laughs) or something. Well, that's good. Well, uh, let's, let's get right into this and start off with a little bit about who is Monica? I see online uh, on Amazon that you've got yourself a, a plethora of books out there: uh, Necrophiles, Poisoning Arrows, Poisoning Arrows One and Two, Eulogies, mm-hmm. Suffer the Flesh, which I understand is probably the one most people know you by, mm-hmm. and uh, Piercing the Darkness. Yeah, these are a bunch of anthologies that I've been in as well. Um, my other book is a collection called In the End Only Darkness, which is actually going to be published. Uh, probably any day, week, or month now in Germany. Excellent. Pastor um, Verlag, who also published Suffer the Flesh in German, and probably one of my most successful publishing uh, ventures was with Pastor Verlag. So, <laughs> um, Suffer the Flesh is the reason that Rap James White reached out to me to co-write Poisoning Arrows 1 and 2 with him, because he said back in the day that he was just shocked to learn that a woman had written Suffer the Flesh and that he didn't know women wrote horror like that. So that started the whole uh, extreme uh, splatter punk, at least between us. And um, I actually say that I was writing torture porn before there was a, a label for it. You know, Suffer the Flesh is pretty much just torture porn. Okay. I mean, hopefully more than just torture porn, but in, in its basest element, that's what it is. Okay, so let's let's go a little bit into that. So mm-hmm. the one thing I had been told is that you write some extreme horror stuff. In, in right. what way is it extreme, and, and, and why is it that, that that's the type of uh, writing that you've gravitated towards? Well, 
I actually started writing it as sort of a challenge to myself. I wanted to see what I could get away with. I was trying to, at the time, emulate like Clive Barker. And we're talking about, you know, the late 90s, early 00s. And as far as what it is, um, it's about as graphic and violent as you can get. And I mean, there's actually a huge uh, audience slash market for that. It's really kind of, I don't know if it's shocking or a little disheartening, but the hard, the most horrific graphic stuff sells first. And um, I lost my train of thought. The one distinction that I like to try when I'm writing this stuff is to actually, because I, I read a lot of horror or a lot of graphic horror where people are clearly just going for the visceral. They're just going for the shock element. I have always tried to have sympathetic characters or a plot, <laughs> you know, things that are really missing from a lot of the more hardcore stuff these days. I mean, that's what separates people like Wrath from the regular uh, writers is that Wrath does the same thing. You connect with his his, his characters and his, and his books. And I try to do the same thing in my writing, even, you know, um, I love writing very dark, humorous pieces because um, I think there's a lot of humor in, in that as well. You know, the, the more afraid you are, the funnier it, it seems to get. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say much more than other than that. I giggle at everything that I've ever <laughs> seen on horror, and it's like, I don't care how good or bad it is. It's freaking funny because people go through those yeah. situations, and it's like, well, real life isn't quite that bad or that good. Right. You know, that's a really good point also. But, but sometimes um, it just gets so intense that your reaction is to laugh. I mean, this is why gallows humor, say with, with police officers or people cleaning up crime, uh, crime scenes, their humor would not be understood by mainstream America because it would be so incredibly offensive and wrong. And yet I think this is what keeps people uh, sane when they have to work in those environments. And not that horror writers have to do that because we can separate ourselves from whatever we're working on. But it's like you said, if you go into, into a, a horror movie, the more intense and insane it seems, almost the funnier it gets. And I think it's almost a, uh, a coping mechanism. I would agree with that because I've talked to a couple of EMTs before and said, yeah, the one day I was out there and I just saw this head roll across the street and it's like, yeah. okay, I'll just walk over and pick that up and put it in a bag now. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you get, it's not necessarily desensitized, but you separate one from the other because if you had to uh, connect the two integrally like oh, yeah. that, you just wouldn't be able to stay sane. I think under normal circumstances, if you or I had to go out and pick up a head rolling across the road, we would probably run shrieking into the woods as far away from that thing as we possibly could. Exactly. You know, so, yeah, it is a way to cope, absolutely. And maybe we are desensitized as well. Um, but I don't know. For movies and for more recreational stuff, are we desensitized or are we just used to the same old? Or is that the same thing? I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, the argument can be put on both sides of that because, uh, like, I think our generations are more, it's not about desensitization, it's about separation. And right. more modern, like the younger generations are more, uh, well, they don't necessarily understand the connection between uh, causal results uh, and interactions and stuff and how right. cause and effect occurs. And that's just an opinion, but... No, it makes a lot of sense, and that's uh, actually fallout from today's generation also. Yeah. You know, it's like a whole new way of looking at everything, you know, than, than how I was raised and, and what I got used to. So, yeah, it's a different environment. I mean, people are now surrounded by war. This is not something that I grew up with. 
we were right. surrounded by the threat of it when I was a kid. But, you know, I mean, Vietnam was ending when I was a kid. I don't remember it. So I never had to be in that environment except for an occasional golf skirmish or something later on in life. Right, and most of the stuff that has happened in the world in the last couple of decades has been, well, yeah, great, we see all that information, we see all that imagery, but we're not connected to it. Exactly. It is definitely a separation. And it's not even coping. I mean, they're just not part of it. So... Yeah, the internet brings us... Maybe that's why this hardcore and splatter sells so much better than it would have, say, 20 years ago, because... um, I don't know. They people find it funnier now. True. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> but... Well, yeah, no, but yeah, um, and, and that kind of segues into the next thing that I would be wanting to talk about is obviously being extreme horror and just being regular horror or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you tell somebody, "Yeah, I write extreme horror," what's the general yeah. reaction you get from people who are maybe not in horror themselves? Well, it's it's kind of funny, because if you're talking about just, you know, meeting people outside uh, who are not writers, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's actually a technique I use to sell books. Right. And sometimes it doesn't work, but then you, you can figure out your audience very quickly. And when people find out that I'm a writer, oh, what do you write? And <laughs> I'm sussing them out and saying something like, um, well, I write really extreme stuff, but I don't think you'd want to read it. It's really Really, really, you know, I mean, I'm sort of using every adjective other than really, and uh, or adverb, whatever. And um, then the, the reaction is either, oh, where can I buy that? Or, oh, thanks for telling me. So this is how, like, the, the reaction is mixed, but I can never really determine which way that's going to go. So you try and suss them out before you say, well, I write the stuff that you probably wouldn't want to read. Um. I usually say that first and then see which way it goes. I would say for the most part, people are interested. Every once in a while, you get somebody who seems scared, doesn't (laughs) want to take a chance on it. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there if you say, well, I write um, like Stephen King, which I would never say, but, I, you know, years ago. And they would say, oh, oh, he's he's too scary. Really? (laughs) You know, have you actually read Stephen King? Well, no, I saw The Shining. Oh, okay. You know, so people just don't understand exactly what they're looking into. They don't understand the huge variations in types of horror. I mean, there's a huge difference between Clive Barker and um, and Charles Grant. I mean, mm-hmm. you have all different styles of horror. So it's really hard to say to somebody that you're just meeting, you know, ex- trying to figure out exactly what they might enjoy. I mean, we've had books returned on Amazon or books badly reviewed on Amazon because of the content. And we're thinking, didn't you read the description? You know, I did everything except put like a big red X across the screen. And it's, it's amazing to me that people are just really, you know, I'm thinking, are they actually reading? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I don't know what they're doing. Sometimes from what I've heard, the Amazon stuff is, oh, it just sounded like a good title. I didn't read nothing about yeah. it. Uh, yeah, okay. it's, it's so hard to judge sometimes. And it's hard to tell who the audience is going to be and whether you're appealing to the right people. Right. You know, so, or that they'll understand what exactly they're picking up. Right. And, so, and, and the same analogy applies in movies and stuff. Like you look at a Hitchcock sure. movie and then you look at a, uh, what's the, like Hostel or Saw or whatever. It's like, right, you're right, talking a horror difference. <laughs> Eli Roth, oh God. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, Mm-hmm. Big difference in styles there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's cool. Um, 
So now, that being the case, I mean, you've mentioned uh, Wrath, and mm-hmm. I know the horror community itself is both large and small. Right. Uh, like, we all seem to know, hey, I know that guy. Hey, I know that person. Hey, I know that right. woman. I know all of these people. And then the interaction between that, I mean, I was going to start talking about the HWA for a second here. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you're a member of the HWA as well, right? For now. <laughs> for now. Yeah, I rejoined last year. Oh, okay, good. And Mm -hmm. what do you think of some of the benefits of being part of an organization like that, of all these types of different writers? Well, you're asking the wrong person for this. Okay. No, I shouldn't even say it like that because I have way too much of an opinion about it. Um, I've had good and bad experiences with the HWA. I mean, years and years ago, 10 years ago, I was really uh, enmeshed in in the organization. I um, I held several different... um, titles in the Stoker Committee and eventually became the Stoker Chairperson. And so those years were fine and those, you know, I enjoyed them. Um, But then the politics got in the way and I ended up leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back. But right now I've rejoined because I like the direction that they're going in. But as far as the benefits, I think, and I haven't seen, I mean, I could talk to somebody like Hal Bodner and he could go on for 20 minutes about how as an active member, as a professional, uh, it's still wonderful for writers, and these are the benefits you would get. Yet, I don't agree. I think that the HWA is terrific for new writers, and there are a lot of resources and benefits, um, you know, mentorship programs, and there's just meeting everybody on message boards and the encouragement that new writers seem to get, hopefully, not by everybody, but for the most part, I think, there is a lot of um, um, support for new writers. And I see it on Facebook, I see it on HWA boards, and which is terrific. But then after that point, you know, you get to a point where what would the benefits be by being an HWA member, an active HWA member, as opposed to a newbie, you know? Like, okay. What are so, the benefits for me? I, I, and I don't mean to sound so, you know, me-centered here, because that's not how I meant it. But for an active member, I'm not quite sure yet what I see as the benefits. Okay. Well, I... I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not so sure, but I've only been uh, a member for a little while, and mm-hmm. I'm just sort of getting my feet wet on it. Right. And it's like, well, you know what? I think there's a lot of good here, and I think a lot of the bigger good, as the more active members have been, is more about how do they participate to take that direction. And right. that is, I haven't necessarily seen all of the uh, goalposts on those. That so. makes a lot of sense as well. And I think that if people got a little more involved, um, they would get more out of it. You know, if you right. were a volunteer every once in a while, if, yeah. if uh, you know, even if the Stoker Committee needs vote counters, if they need, you know, I'm not even sure what the process is anymore, but we used to need vote counters. And I used to go after people and ask them to, quote, unquote, volunteer for me. And um, so if people were to get involved and understand more what was going on, if people were to more actively vote, Active members, one of the benefits of membership is active, um, is being able to vote on the Stoker ballots. Well, and, and I'm going to change gears here for a second. Sure. Um, so I know you, I don't know if you're aware, but February is Women in Horror Month. Oh, yeah. And this is something that on the uh, Great Lakes Horror Company podcast right now is mm-hmm. this month we're focusing and fixating on women in horror as well. Yay. Okay. Yay, women in horror. <laughs> and my thought has always been, it's like, great, there's people in horror. and Everybody tries to put labels on stuff. But mm-hmm. that's 
how things are. Um, how are some of your opinions on women in horror? I mean, do you like well, women in horror? It's funny that you should say that because I agree with you. I actually think it's such a nice idea to have a Women in Horror Month. But, you know, we're there every month. And it was through the years I've heard of um, conventions, horror conventions that have only female guests of honor. And I thought that was horrendous. And I happen to know a couple. I won't mention through the years. I won't mention which ones they were. But there have been women-only guests of honor. And it's an insult to everybody, men and women, to do that. Because you're singling out one group, but why? Why are you singling them out when they should just be part of the culture? So while it's great and I appreciate being part of it, I appreciate being asked to do this interview, um, it always, you know, I've always had such mixed feelings about the whole thing. And this has been going on for several years now. And, you know, it's almost like, okay, roll call. Let's see, it's the middle of January. Let's see. Okay, let's mention all these women in horror. Well, where are these women when the anthologies are being filled, you know, I the last I read the first thing that I do when I look at an anthology is see how many female names are in it, and I don't entirely blame the editors, which are usually men, um, because I I know a lot of these anthologies women don't apply, do not submit to them, and I don't understand that. I, okay, so let's let's try that for a second. Uh, why mm-hmm. would you think that some women wouldn't be, or would do they feel like they don't have a shot? Do they feel like uh, the the role is not there for them, or that there's no support for it? That's a great question, and you know it's hard to narrow it down into one answer, or or you know, based on what I have seen, I think a lot of women um, who write horror write. Um, you know, a lot of these anthologies are very specific. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are extreme, or there's not a lot of hardcore. There are quite a few of us out there, but not that many. Um, so perhaps it's just not the subject they're interested in. And it's different markets, different um, um, market listings. So I might find a market listing and yet be one of the few females who have seen it. And... I'm not quite sure how to get the word out there. You know, you want to write to all of these women in horror and say, well, just go out there and be in horror. Don't be a woman in horror. Just keep submitting everything. Yeah. So I, I don't know why so many women don't submit to so many markets, because they should. Absolutely. Everybody should submit yeah. to everything that they can possibly even have a yeah, hope of really. trying to get to. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. But again, also, and I've seen this even with... Uh, with other you know, famous writers like Harlan Ellison who do not like to be labeled. They don't want to say they're part of a genre. Right. You know, we used to joke, we used to laugh and say, well, Harlan is one of ours. He's a horror writer. And the sci-fi world will say, well, he's a sci-fi writer. And, you know, we were fighting over Harlan who was pretty much just saying, I'm a writer. Yeah. You know, he'll write whatever he wants. Because he's well, also think... a fantasy writer, too. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. He is um, so many genres and he just transcends genre. And I think a lot of women should just get out there and submit to whatever they can, get their names out there. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting viewpoint. Uh, I think we <laughs> probably share the same viewpoint on that, so I don't think we're going to have any sparks going off on that. Gosh darn it, and gee golly gum gosh. I know. I know. I'm usually so, like, I get so crazy militant because uh, somebody I know a few years ago, um, and he's a, a good voice in the community. I don't want to mention his name, though, right. because we got into an argument over this women in horror thing. And this was going back about four or five years. And his great idea was to have a convention featuring female horror guests of honor. 
and I basically told him why that was the worst idea ever. And, you know, he was very kind about it. You know, we didn't fight too much. Yeah, yeah. But it's, to me... Difference of opinions. Yeah, why would you single out somebody, a group by their sex, when it has nothing to do with their writing? I've been told I write like a guy. What does that even mean? I write hardcore. I write, you know, over at the top, insane stuff sometimes. But I've read men who have written very flowery, purple, sweet, soft prose. So do they write like women? I'm not saying nothing about that. Or do they write like the male version of whatever they're writing? Well, exactly. I mean, people... Personally, people people write as what they are writing. I mean, everybody yeah. identifies as what they're most commonly used to, but yeah. it translates out as to you are just writing. It's funny, too, because right now um, I finished a couple of stories. One was um, extreme, extreme, extreme. Basically, I hate to say a serial killer story, but it really was, but it had what I hope is a good twist. But it also used a torture device that I have never seen used before in in literature or movies or, or anywhere. And it's starting to make the rounds online, so I'm kind of glad I threw it into my story. I shouldn't say threw it in. I, I wrote in a very, very large scene around it, but it's called The Boats. Um, not the story, but the device. Right. It's medieval. And uh, quickly, in a nutshell, you put the victim in a hollowed-out boat. You lay them in the boat head, arms, and legs sticking out. You cover them with a second boat hollowed out. You have been feeding this victim uh, milk and honey for days, and then you slather the body with honey, and you send them out into a stagnant little pond or something, and you let the bugs devour your victim. And it is, it could take days, or depending on whether you continue to, like, give your victim food and water, it could take weeks for this person to die. Yeah, talking cause... about like every rodent, every insect, and I, I finally got to use that in a story. <laughs> it's like the uh, Red Hill Ants thing or whatever that they do in the wow. desert things or whatever, where you just cover them in honey, put them by a, an yeah, anthill, exactly. and let them eat you raw. Yeah, I mean, that is, oh my God, what a horrible way to go. To me, I mean, an animal eating you, a bear, a shark, ants, I don't care. What a horrible, horrible way to go. But could you imagine it taking days or weeks to die? Yep. You're tied into a boat, you can't move, you're crapping all over yourself, which is attracting even more bugs. Uh-huh, and right. <laughs> the mental thing that goes and says, hey, do I give up or do I keep thinking I'm going to be able to hope? Do I give up? Do I hope? Do I give up? Do I hope? Oh, I think at that point you're praying for death. Eh, some people I mean, still I would keep. I can't imagine wanting to survive that. At that point, I don't know, I, I really think I would be begging for death. I hope I never find out. Well, I hope nobody has to find out, but I'm sure people have, because <laughs> really? obviously they did at some point. Oh, they sure did. No, I thought you were going to come out with the uh, the iron bull thing or whatever, where they throw you in the uh, bull and they said uh, light the fire oh, underneath. Oh, I've used that. Yeah. I got a you kick out of that one. Suffer the Flesh. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's not in Suffer the Flesh. I have a short story called Cell. Um, I have a love, a fascination with medieval torture devices, and <laughs> I use them as often as I can, because it it blows my mind that people did this to each other, it, that somebody came up with these things. They came up with the breast ripper and the pear and the wheel and, oh, my God, you know, the Iron Maiden. Yes. Not just a rock group. <laughs> well, no, that one was one I was particularly fond of as far as a yeah. device. Right. Drawn and quartering. Uh, Drawn and quartering. Yeah, but a whole bunch of stuff. that is relatively quick. 
I mean, I don't know. I guess having your limbs pulled off, hopefully your blood loss will result in pretty fast death. That and the shock probably puts you up pretty darn quick and you never recover from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, now that that's all been very pleasant uh, discourse, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the uh, Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Well, I thought so, too. Thanks for joining us, and remember, you can download a new podcast every Monday. For more on Monica J. O'Rourke, the easiest way to find her is on Twitter, at Monica with a C, and then J-O-R-O-U-R-K-E. To connect with the HWA Ontario chapter or become a member, visit lovehorror.biz slash HWA. And if you want to come and meet some of us in the flesh, you have many opportunities throughout the year. Uh, first up, the Ontario Horror Writers Association will be having a booth at the March Comic Con here in Toronto, uh, March 18th to 20th at the Toronto Convention Centre. And it's always recommended that you buy your tickets in advance online because the crowds can get pretty crazy at those Comic Cons. Uh, you will find many of our members uh, running around at Astra, uh, April 29th to May 1st. And, of course, the big, the big enchilada is the Horror Writers Association Stoker Con, May 12th to 15th in Las Vegas at the Flamingo Hotel. This also uh, is hosting Horror University. And since our topic tonight was about how to get published, uh, this is your chance to schmooze with the big guys, meet those editors, meet those publishers, sign up for pitch sessions, and start that career cooking. Next week, we will be taking a look into the world of publishing with a side trip into poetry with our new uh, interview. That'll be me interviewing Sandra Kasturi, who is the co-publisher at Cheesine Publications out of Toronto. Until then, may your deepest nightmares fill all of your plot holes.